Hey, good morning, Harlan. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to have all of you who may be watching online, wherever you may be. Uh, such a big day. Such a big day that we, that we have here. I love Kansas City. I love the Midwest. Anyone else? You love the Midwest? We live here because we love the Midwest? Yes. Obviously, we do. We wouldn't live here if we didn't. But I want to be honest. There are some trade-offs for living in the Midwest. I just want to name them. There are some things that make life a little bit harder. You know, it's like, you know, we, we're a few years behind on the latest trends that hit the scene, right? They just don't always make it all the way into the Midwest. And travel may require an, a, an extra connecting flight or two. Yep. And, you know, the rest of the country may cheer against us when our team is in the Super Bowl again. Like, that's just part of life here in the Midwest. There's some trade-offs. But personally speaking, if there's one trade-off for the Midwest, for me, it has to do with the scenery. We lack something that means a lot to me, mountains. Okay, anyone else? Yes. We... Now, don't get, me, don't get me wrong, and I'm not talking about the Flint Hills. <laughs> there's, a certain, there's a certain distinct beauty to the scenery of Kansas, to all of the, the miles of, of prairie landscapes that we have. But if I could, I would be willing to trade a few of those prairies for just one mountain or two, right? Because there's a thing about mountains. The mountains, they have a way of getting our attention, don't they? Whether it's the Rockies or the Tetons of Wyoming or even the Smokies of eastern Tennessee, every, every mountain is unique from the other. Every mountain has its own personality, yet every mountain boasts the same invitation. It's this invitation that author and nature lover John Muir famously coined, the mountains are calling and I must go. We must go because their wilderness awakens our senses and broadens our imagination. And when we go, if you've ever gone, you know this. The mountains have a way of helping us interpret our lives, right? Because if the mountains give us a gift, it's perspective. When we climb their slopes, they give us the chance to look upon our world from a higher place, to see what matters, and to return to the planes of our lives better because of it. So it should come as no surprise that God actually loves mountains. I mean, we could do a whole series on all of the mountains in Scripture where God shows up because he loves to use mountains as a place to meet people and to change them, to give them a different perspective on things. But in this series that we've been in this year, we've been looking at one mountain in particular, and it's where Jesus chose, this, it's where Jesus chose to give his most powerful teaching what we've been calling, what is called, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to be sure, we don't know where this mountain is, but we know that it was probably somewhere along the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Now, these mountains are no 14ers. Let me just be honest. But they do reach 1,000 feet or two above the sea, and somewhere along their heights is where Jesus chose to give us his divine perspective on things. And so far in this sermon, he's been describing this new kingdom that's breaking into this world. He's inviting people to be a part of it, to live as the people of this kingdom. And last weekend, we looked at how he described the people of this kingdom, that you will be a light to the world, that you will be the salt of the earth. You will be a city on a what? A hill. God loves mountains. And as we look at the part of the sermon that comes next, he begins to teach us how. 
How do we live as this people, this city on this hill, this outward reflection to the world around us of who God is? And he takes a little bit of a turn in this teaching. And here, here's what he says. Let me, let me read this for us. You can read along here. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in this kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There is some confusing stuff here, right? Amen? You can admit it? Yeah, if you're drawn to Jesus because you thought he would make things easy, this raises some questions. Or if you were curious about Jesus because he seemed like a breath of fresh air from religion and that he would set aside all of that confusing, outdated stuff in the Old Testament, these verses will mess with you. And apparently a lot of the people who followed Jesus up this mountain in Galilee, they thought this too. They thought, finally, someone has come to do away with all of that Old Testament nonsense that is way past its shelf life. But Jesus comes and he makes something really really clear. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish, to undo, to get rid of. Some translations will even say destroy. Do not think that I have come to undo these things. People apparently thought this, but I have come to fulfill them. Now, what does he mean by the law and the prophets? This is Jesus's way of saying anything that God has commanded us to do in the Old Testament. He's just kind of summarizing it all up. He says, I haven't come to cancel that out. I've come to fulfill it. So uh, that raises some questions for us. Because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven actually depends on these things. Even down to the smallest detail of all of these laws, the kingdom of heaven depends on these things, which raises some questions. Why didn't Jesus abolish them? What was their purpose in the first place? And for us, the question is, what do they mean for us today? And so to answer these questions, we have to go back about 1,500 years to a different mountain in the Middle East. In fact, it's one of the first mountains in the Bible where God shows up. It's down in the southern, somewhere in the southern peninsula of Sinai. We think it might be this or somewhere around this. This is Mount Sinai. This mountain stands about 12,000 feet tall, filled with desert, jagged rocks located in the southern Sinai peninsula. And this is where God shows up. Because God has just rescued the Israelite people from their slavery in Egypt. They have just somehow miraculously crossed across the Red Sea. And now they find themselves wandering the desert at the foot of Sinai without a clue as to what to do next. They have no identity. They have no land. They have no future. And so God calls out to their leader, Moses. And this is what God says. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me onto the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments that I have written for their instruction. And then Moses set out with Joshua his aide and Moses went up to the mountain of God. 
For the next 40 days, uh, Moses was on top of this mountain because the Israelites had been rescued from Egypt for a reason. God was going back to this promise that he had made to their great, 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 somewhere great grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, and said, said, you will be my people. You will give birth to an entire nation of people, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will never forsake you. He makes these promises to them. And so when the Israelites are crying out from their slavery in Egypt, God responds because he is in relationship with them. So he is now reintroducing himself to the Israelite people. And he's saying, you are my people. And with this relationship comes a purpose to represent me to all of the nations of the world that I'm going to use you to put my power and my love and my existence on display to the whole world. And that's why in Exodus 34, Moses is still on the mountain 10 chapters later. And the Lord said to him, I am making a covenant with you. This is this relationship. Because all of your people, before all of your people, I will do wonders never before done in any other nation in all of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, that I the Lord, will do for you. So obey what I command you today. And this is where God gives us what we call the law. It's where we find the Ten Commandments. It's the first ten of the uh, more than 600 instructions that God would give the Israelites throughout the rest of the Old Testament, which makes us wonder, 600? Huh. What's up with God and laws? <laughs> you know, why so many? I mean, ten, I get that. Ten, that's helpful. But 600... And why are some of them so strange? I mean, if you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, you've struggled with this. I mean, you would have an easier time reading the Johnson County ordinances than you would, you know, the Old Testament, but you probably haven't done that either. I mean, let's look at, you know, Le Leviticus, which is where we find a lot of these laws. This is one of them that shows up. Don't trim your beard. Leviticus 19.27. What does God have against beards? Right? You know, we saw Andy Reid's mustache today. And for, personally, I take this as a little, I'm this little tender because I participate in No Shave November every year and I look like this. Like, so, so yeah, I feel like God's persecuting me a little bit. Don't trim your beard. Here's another one that we find in Deuteronomy. Don't muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. I don't even know what that means. Okay. Or uh, don't eat sea creatures that don't have fins and scales. So if you were planning on shrimp tacos for lunch, does that mean like, no, we're we can't do that? I don't know. And then especially this one, one more, one more for us. Don't kill a burglar during the day. But if you find a burglar in the night, you can kill him. So if you're planning on robbing someone, do it during the day, not at night. It'll work out better for you. This doesn't make any sense to us. You know, why does God so intent on laws? Why are there so many and why are those so strange? A couple things we need to remember. One is that the people of Israel, remember, they're learning how to be a people. They're learning how to govern themselves now that they are out of Egypt. And every one of these laws, every one of the 600 laws, odd as they may seem, actually dealt with a particular need at a particular time and a place in history. But these laws aren't just showing Israel how to be a people. They're showing them how to be the people of God. They're showing them how to be this people that become this outward reflection of who God is, to put his power and his love on display before the world. There's a word for this. We've been talking about it throughout this whole series, and the word is righteousness. The righteousness basically means to live rightly, but to go one level a little bit deeper, to be righteous is to live in right relationship with God 
and with other people. But this is not easy. And the Israelites are actually pretty terrible at it. In fact, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments, the Israelites are down at the foot of the mountain arguing and fighting with each other. And they've made a golden statue that they believe is who rescued them from Egypt. And so God wants to help them. So God gives them some laws and some instructions to show them how to do this, how to live in right relationship with God and one another. So since we're talking about mountains today, I want us to think of righteousness as kind of its own kind of mountain, all right? Now, the thing about righteousness is this is not an easy mountain to climb. Living rightly with God, living rightly with one another, this is a steep climb. This is, this is hard, And so God gives them some laws, some instructions, like a good parent would, to help them. Now, here's what I know about hiking mountains. If you try to climb one, you always need a a pack, right? Because there are things that you put in the pack to help you up the mountain, to make the climb a little bit easier. So you put water in here, you put some food, some snacks, a change of clothes, a different pair of shoes, maybe a first aid kit, or maybe, I don't know, uh, a... Some bug spray, bear spray, whatever you might need when you're encountering the mountain, you're going to put on the pack to help you up the mountain. Now, uh, every summer, my wife and I, we try to get our gang out into the wilderness. We love to find mountains. We love to make that drive across the rest of Kansas into Colorado to find some mountains, to awaken our senses, to see the views, to get a different perspective of things. And it, it never fails. Whenever we get to the trailhead, We have a pack, sometimes usually there's six of us, so we have a few of them. Nobody wants to carry the pack. They all wanna climb the mountain. They all want what's in the pack, but nobody wants to carry the pack. Why? Because it's heavy. Because it actually makes the climb up the mountain a little bit harder. And this is what I think the laws of the Old Testament can feel like, probably did feel like to the Israelites. They were there to help the Israelites up the mountain, but they seemed to only, they felt like they were only making it heavier. God gives them, why is there so many? This is a question we ask. God gives them some laws here at Sinai, and then he gives them some time to try this out, and they they fail miserably. So God gets a little more specific. He, He gives them some more. They fail again. They're just not getting it. So God gives them some more laws. And this this happens over time, over and over again. In fact, if you're trying to make sense of the Old Testament, this is a way to kind of see it. God's trying to help the Israelites. They flunk. He tries to help them with a little bit more. They flunk. And you begin to wonder, are they ever, are they ever gonna make it up this mountain? Are they ever gonna figure out how to love God to live in right relationship with him and to live in right relationship with each other. So it's no wonder that when Jesus finally shows up on the scene 1,500 years later, he starts with the words in this sermon, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they will be filled. And it's no coincidence that he says this, that he teaches about this kingdom where? On a mountain. Because Jesus knows that mountains change our perspective. And that's exactly what he is doing in this passage, this strange, confusing passage that kind of shocks us and throws us off a little bit. That's what he's doing in this passage today. He's giving us a better view of some things. He's, he's taking us up the mountain on the side of Galilee. And he's giving us a better view of a few things. And I want to mention a few for us. He gives us a better view of righteousness. He takes what we think is righteous and he says, think again. 
Now, if there was one group of people in Israel that seemed to have this righteousness thing down, it was the Pharisees. It was the teachers of the law. These were the Bible experts. They maxed out their gold star charts in, in Sunday school classes, kids. They had it down. They had memorized all 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they had spent their lives trying to figure out how best to follow them and to teach others to follow them in those same ways. Now, a lot of times, we give the Pharisees a bad rap. We do. Now, but I want to give them a little bit of credit. To their credit, they're just trying to do what Moses told, what God told Moses to tell the people to do, to obey what God commanded them. And they, if you look back in the history of Israel, they saw what happened when the Israelites didn't obey God. That foreign armies would come in and destroy their land and enslave them and carry them off into exile as a kind of a form of punishment of not, not living rightly with God and, and one another. And so they're saying, I'm not going to let that happen again. And they thought if we could just finally figure out how to obey these laws, that would be a prelude to the kingdom of heaven that they wanted to come in their day. And so they made themselves, they took it upon themselves to be an example of how to follow the laws in front of everyone else. So I, you can't blame them completely for that. But then Jesus says this shocking statement in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That word surpass, that's a big word. That your, your righteousness must surpass, must be greater, than, must ex exceed that of the most religious people there. I want, let's put this in, some of you are math people, so look at it like this. That your righteousness must surpass, you can go to the next slide, Joel. There you go. Well, you know, there we go. Your righteousness must be greater than right? Greater than the Pharisees' righteousness. That's kind of a shocking statement to make. Notice that Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that your righteousness must be in the same ballpark as the Pharisees. Your righteousness must be pretty close to the Pharisees' righteousness. He says it must be greater than. And that's just as shocking to the Pharisees as it is to everyone else in the crowd. Because what it means to the Pharisees, Jesus is saying, even your righteousness isn't good enough. So in other words, Jesus says to this whole crowd on the side of the mountain, he says, nobody among you, not even the best, not even the experts, not even those who have it all figured out that you're trying to figure out how do we live more like them, not even the experts are making the cut. Everyone is flunking this class, is what Jesus is saying. And so if you're in the crowd, and most of us are certainly not Pharisees and experts in the law, what we think as Jesus says that is, well, that sucks. So what is Jesus saying? There's two things that Jesus could possibly be saying. The first is that he's telling people that they need to follow the law more strictly than the Pharisees did. That they needed to tighten it up. But that would be impossible. Because the Pharisees followed God's laws so strictly that they actually created more laws around God's laws as a kind of protective fence. And when you add those up, it's not just 600 laws, it's more in the 900s of all of the laws and commandments that the Pharisees were trying to live by. So there's really no way to tighten it up any more than they already had. And so if Jesus isn't saying that you needed to be better followers of all of these laws, what is he saying? He's saying you need a different kind of righteousness altogether. That what you think of when you think of righteousness isn't the righteousness of the kingdom that I came to bring. 
He looks at, he looks at, the, at the Pharisees frequently in the Gospels, and he uses them as an example. Later on, if we jump ahead about 20 chapters, he says to the Pharisees, woe to you. Now, if anyone ever says, woe to you, you're like, wait, hold on, what, what? We don't use the word woe, but it means watch out, right? Whoa, hold on, stop. Watch out, Pharisees. On the outside, you appear as a people as, as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He's saying, you are doing everything right, guys. You're doing the right habits. You're performing the right traditions. You're using all of the right words, and you're even wearing the right clothes. The problem is that it's only skin deep for you. Now, I don't think that Jesus is just calling out a few bad eggs here. You know, and there were plenty of bad eggs in his day, and especially among the Pharisees. You know, there were definitely those who were hypocrites, but I don't think he's calling just a few hypocrites. I think he's calling everyone. I think, I think, he, I think he's, calling, he's, he's, he's bringing all of us into view, and he's using the Pharisees as an example. He's saying the better righteousness that God desires is not, it's not an external righteousness. The better righteousness is an inside-out kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that doesn't just change our behavior or our actions. It changes our hearts, too. In fact, that's where it starts. And that's what the Pharisees and everyone else were getting wrong. And so before we just throw all of them, and especially the Pharisees under the bus, can we just take a moment and recognize how easy this is for, for each of us too? That this is something we can get wrong in our life too? That, that we kind of emphasize our external behavior, but not so much our hearts? And Jesus always cares more about our hearts. And I love that Heartland isn't a place that's built on religious pretenses, or that you can come in here and feel no pressure to look the part, that you can be who you are, you can be where you are, because that's where God meets us. But if there's a question that we need to keep asking ourselves, it's this. Where do I need a change of heart? This is the work that Jesus does. Where does, where does my internal life not line up with my, my external life? Where do, where do my thoughts, my attitudes my motives, not line up with the way that I'm living or the person that I want people to think that I am? Where does my heart not line up with God's heart? You see, that's where true righteousness begins. That's the better righteousness that Jesus is giving us a view of. He's giving us a better view of a better righteousness, but he's giving us a view of something else up here on this mountain. He gives us a better view. Here's the next, the next thing he gives us a better view of. He gives us a better view of the law, of these 600 commandments and instructions that have been given by God to the people of Israel. Now, Jesus knew that the people of Israel tended to treat them as a checklist. Now, the, the, the thing about checklists is you could check all of the boxes and you can still miss the point. You know this to be true in your workplace, in your family, in your marriage. You can check all of the, the right boxes, but you miss the point. We check boxes all the time too, even in our relationship with God. We showed up at church, check. We uh, sang a few songs, prayed a few prayers, check, check. We volunteered somewhere. I think double check for that one, right? Gave an offering, <laughs> give me a few more of those checks. We can approach our relationship with God in the same sort of way. But when we treat God's instructions like a checklist, we're missing the whole point. 
And Jesus knew that every law and every command that God gives, even the strange ones, had a point. And what was the point of all of these commands? They all had the same point expressed differently, to point us away from what's sin. And what is sin is anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. It's anything that, any way that we choose to live our lives at the expense of how God says that we should live our lives. Anything that points us away from sin, and we need help seeing that, which is why God gives us laws. You know, because we like to think that we know what's right better than what God knows is right. This is why we yell at referees. Because we think we have a better view of what's right and wrong than they do. This is why I have always tried to talk myself out of every traffic ticket I have ever gotten because I think I have a better view of what's right or wrong than the officer does. I need something to help me see what is sin, what is getting in the way. But the laws don't just do that, it's pointing us away from sin, but it's also pointing us toward God's intent, kind of the ideal that he has in mind for us as we, as we live our lives. But what's God's intent? Well, if we fast forward, Jesus makes it really easy for us. There's a time where someone pulls up to, to Jesus' side and says, hey, hey, teacher, what's the greatest law? I mean, make it easy for us. Of all of those 600 laws, if you could boil it all down to like one thing, what's the intent? What's the point they're asking? What's the greatest law? And he says to them, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, remember that phrase? Everything that God has ever spoken to us, every one of those 600 plus commandments, all of those things hang on these two commandments. That's God's intent. Love God with everything you've got and love others like you'd love yourself. And every one of those 600 laws was meant to help people do that. And that seems easy enough. We go, okay, whew, I can do that. Just love God and love people. But, G but Jesus knows love is a lot harder than we think. Love, there's nothing about love that is easy. And so back here in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes six laws that the Israelites would have been familiar with. These are probably six of the most well-known and well-practiced laws in the, in the culture of the day. And he takes these six and he, he says, you're treating these like like a checklist. But I want to show you, they don't just keep us from sin. They're supposed to point us towards something else. And if you're just following the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, you're missing it completely. So he starts, he starts with murder. It seems easy enough. There's a lot of verses in here. I encourage you to read them sometime this week because there's a lot of details here. But he starts with murder. And uh, it seems easy enough. You know, right? Don't do it. Hopefully we've all had a murder-free week? <laughs> Check. <laughs> and Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know the law says, don't murder, but I tell you, he raises the standard. He says, but I tell you, anyone who is even angry with their brother, who is angry with anyone is subject to judgment. He says, you've heard that killing people is wrong, that's good, but why is it wrong? Because murdering people steals life from them, and you don't have to kill someone to steal life from them. That when it, whenever you act out in anger toward them, whenever you insult them, whenever you think less of them, then you're stealing life from them. And he says that relationship between you and your neighbor is so important that even if you're at the altar worshiping God, making a sacrifice, which they would have done, this doesn't work if there's something here getting in the way. 
He says, so do whatever you need to do. Leave this for days if you have to, to go do everything you can to make this right. Because righteousness is as much this, my relationship with the other person as it is my relationship with God. That's the intent that Jesus is pointing us to. So he moves on from murder and he goes to adultery. He says, you know that adultery is wrong because the law says so. And I just want to be sure. I hope we know that too. We live in a society that, you know, thinks it's not that bad. But there is nothing, no good that can come of that. And so it may seem obvious. But Jesus is saying, you know that this is wrong. But just because you have stayed away from adultery in your marriage, you are still putting your marriage in danger with some of the other ways that you live your life. He says, I'm gonna broaden, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lift this, I'm gonna raise this standard. He says, you don't have to sleep with someone else to put your marriage in jeopardy. One lustful thought, one lingering glance, one fantasy, one click, it not only betrays your spouse, but it objectifies and it dehumanizes someone else. Jesus is pointing us away from what is sin, away from what gets in our relationship with God and others. And he's pointing us toward his intent that he wants us to experience beautiful, honoring marriages with others. So then he moves on from adultery and it kind of makes sense because if there's one way to put our marriages in jeopardy, it's to, it's to allow lust and lies into our marriage. And he talks about a third thing, he talks about divorce. And if you've ever been down this road, Jesus' words, some of the scripture's teachings about divorce can feel like more weight on an already sore wound. But Jesus wants us to see, he wants us to see, he's not just pointing us away from the sin. He's pointing us toward something better and he's helping us see, see that divorce isn't the sin as much as the broken marriages. Divorce is simply the recognition of that. But Jesus wants us to see that a broken marriage is just as severe as a divorced one so that we should do all that we can to restore it and to help one another to restore them. And these are delicate roads that we need to carefully walk alongside one another in because this is hard stuff, y'all. Jesus knows that. And if this is part of your story, you know that too. And if you find yourself either having been through a divorce or in the midst of a divorce or wondering if your marriage is headed to one, if you just have a broken or even sideways marriage, we hope that this is a place that we can be a people who are walking alongside one another well. And if you don't know where to start, just reach out to us. Find time with one of our pastors or our counselors or one of our divorce groups because we want to help you hear Jesus' voice and feel his tenderness and his love alongside you in this as well. So murder, adultery, divorce. <laughs> Thanks, Dan, for assigning me this passage this weekend. <laughs> That's just the first three things that Jesus mentions in this passage. And then he goes on. He says, he says dishonesty. He says you don't have to break an oath to break your word. He talks about revenge. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. He talks about enemies. He says you've heard it said, it's okay to hate your enemies, but I tell you to love your enemies, and to pray for them. And this, this is quite the list. If you want a surefire recipe for a popular TV show, this is it. 
But with each of these, what I want us to see, what Jesus wants us to see, is Jesus is raising the standard so much so that he wraps up this section with the hardest, the most severe statement of all. He says, so be, say this word, perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. Now, that's asking a whole lot, Jesus. <laughs> I thought you came to make it easier, not harder. The thing with perfection is there's no room for mistakes. There's no wiggle room here. There's no loopholes. I mean, even some of the honest mistakes. There's no room for exceptions, nothing. Like, perfection, really? Jesus doesn't say, hey, just, just try your best. He says, be perfect. So perfect that you're as perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's really perfect. And this is the Jesus that you and I struggle with. Let's be honest. We love the Jesus who forgives us. We love the one who welcomes the children and makes miracles happen. The one who throws out grace upon us. But we struggle with the Jesus who says things like that. And we don't know what to do with those statements. Because this feels like hardly the kind of thing that a loving parent, a loving God would say to us. Unless, unless there's something that Jesus is trying to help us see. Maybe not to see as much as to feel. See, if, if we go back to these packs, remember these packs that are meant to help us up the mountain and inside these packs is all of these laws that God has given us. As Jesus is talking through these laws, I think he's pulling them out one by one, right? And then he's putting them back in our pack, but he's making them even heavier. And all of a sudden, our back just starts to get a little bit sore and we're not moving quite as fast up this mountain. And I think Jesus wants us to see, to feel the heaviness of how to live righteously, how to follow the laws in our relationships, in our thoughts, in our marriages, with our words, even how we treat our enemies. And so Jesus wants us to feel the crushing weight on our back until we finally cry out, that's it. That's enough. I can't, I can't carry this. I can't make it up this mountain. I'm done. To which Jesus says, exactly. Amen. Because the biggest thing that Jesus is doing here, the thing that we can't miss, is that he is giving us a bigger view, a better view of why he came. You see, when you feel the weight that perfect righteousness requires and you realize that this is an impossible thing to carry, that's when Jesus looks at you and says, now you're seeing it. Now you're seeing just how big this mountain is and you're seeing why I came. I didn't come just to teach you how the law works. I didn't come even just to teach you how to climb this mountain. I came to carry this load, this impossible load for you. And that's why Jesus says at the beginning of this, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because there is something about every single one of those laws, right down to the last detail and pen stroke, that is becoming true in the life of Jesus. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian, he has a quote. He says, fulfillment of the law is impossible apart from communion with God. 
if I don't have communion with God, how do I fulfill the law? He says, but communion with God is impossible apart from fulfillment of the law. This is why Jesus came. Because he who is the one who dwells in perfect communion with God is the only one who could fulfill the law right down to every jot and tittle. And so he came not to dismiss or undo or cancel out the law because his very purpose was to fulfill it, to complete it, to make it true. And what does this mean for us? It means that we have communion with God. It means that Jesus isn't just some teacher on the side of a mountain who's giving you perspective for a better life. He is the son of God who makes that life possible. It means that we can't require or we, we, we can't earn or achieve the righteousness we so desperately need no matter how good we are across all of the areas of our lives because that righteousness isn't earned, it's given. It means that our focus as followers of Jesus is not on following all of the laws of the Old Testament. Our focus is on following the one who fulfilled all of those laws. And he himself teaches us how to live. And so how is my heart, how is my life, how are my relationships and my actions lining up with the way that he teaches me to live? And that is fulfilling what all of those laws existed for. We follow him. It means that he has the power to change our hearts and to forgive us of every area where we fall short as we try to do this. And all of this, all of this is only possible because of another mountain. Another mountain that only Jesus would ascend, that only Jesus could ascend, and we've been looking at it the whole time. There's a reason there's a cross on the stage, because near the end of his life, Jesus climbed up this mountain of Golgotha, the Mount of the Crucifixion, which sat outside the city of Jerusalem. And that's where his perfection was offered up and sacrificed on our behalf. And that's the mountain, friends, that truly changes us. And Jesus actually climbed that mountain so that we wouldn't have to, but so that we could experience all of the benefits of him doing so. And it's on that mountain, it's at the foot of that cross that I think Jesus says, hey, that pack that you've been carrying, the heaviness that you feel, you don't have to carry that anymore. I've done that for you. He takes upon himself, upon the cross, he takes the weight of perfection. He takes the weight of righteousness. He takes the weight of all of the guilt and the shame that we feel when we can't carry those things. And at the cross, at the top of the mountain, he takes it away from us and we get to receive the benefits, the freedom, the life that he makes possible for us. See, he knows we can't climb the Mount of Righteousness So he carries the pack for us. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion, something we're going to do right now. 
is that Jesus came and he climbed the mountain of the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Have to. And like Dan said, it's not lost on us that today's a fun day. We're going to go have a lot of fun out in the atrium. But we knew, maybe especially today, that if there is one thing worth celebrating, it's celebrating what Jesus has done for us. It's celebrating this. It's celebrating this through communion and worshiping with a couple of songs that the band is going to lead us through. And we're, we have tables around the room. We have three up front. We have a couple in the back. At any point when you're ready, as the band leads us in worship, you can, you can come up, you can take the bread, and you can take the juice. Just a reminder of Jesus' perfect life, which was given up for you and for me. And you can take them here. You can take them back to your seats. But take a moment and just think about this mountain of righteousness. And... Think about how Jesus is walking beside you, carrying the load for you and helping you see and experience all of the benefits of it. If you're wondering, hey, here at Heartland, I'm kind of new around here. Uh, who can do this? Who can come up to these tables? Anyone can. Because Jesus climbed that mountain for everyone. Jesus' grace is available for everyone. The most righteous among us and the least. All that we ask is that as you come and do this, you think about the grace that you're in need of. You think about the Savior that you have, and you let this be a meaningful experience for you. And so in a moment, we'll do that. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you that you came to this earth and you put your heart on display for us. If this means anything for us today, it means that you change our hearts that you do the one thing that we could never do for ourselves. You save us. And that you give us a new heart. And so we thank you that you not only meet us on this mountain, but you change us. You not only give us a new perspective on life, but you give us a new power. And so as we come to this table of grace, we come grateful, we come needing to have our hearts softened, we come needing to have our eyes opened to what you've done and to who you are. And we do this as a community, the community that you are shaping us into through your grace, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, that we would be marked as an outward reflection to our world of the love that defines every bit of who you are. And so we come, Jesus, because of what you've done for us. And it's in your name that we do this. Amen. When you're ready, you can come forward.